This is the Case Dot Report. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Case Dot Report. Mohammed Hams is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us. We've got a fantastic show for you today. It's all about global health. And we are fortunate enough to have some brilliant colleagues in Irish EM and on the TCR team who have some fantastic experience to share with us. So to kick things off, I'm joined by my two esteemed trainee colleagues, Callum Swift and Jimmy Lee, who have a great case to share with us. Let's get to it. Hey Callum, hey Jimmy, how are things? Great, thanks, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good, happy to be here. Great, thanks so much for joining us. Um, so, what have we got today, Jimmy? So, the setting is Monrovia, Liberia, and you're the house officer on call for the emergency department in Liberia's main teaching hospital. A 49-year-old mechanic presents to the ED with a complaint of severe chest pain and palpitations for the past two weeks. He describes the pain as dull and progressively worsening, and on the morning of his presentation, it started radiating to his neck and jaw. He rated the pain as 8 out of 10, and it was only partially relieved with IV morphine. He was also sweating, agitated, and continued to vomit in the department. So what are you thinking? Badness. This guy had an LLS score of 1, for sure. What's uh, what's an LLS? It looks like a score. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a classic score. Another word score. for the end of bettergram. Okay, we'll, we'll bleep that out anyways. We bleep out all dirty words on this podcast, like, you know, shit, f- Flumazno. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, sweating, severe pain, not relieved by morphine or pretty big alarm bells. So what's on your differential? Uh, Costochondriasis, I think would be, no, I'm getting all the all the serious causes of chest pain, all the life-threatening stuff. So this guy looks awful. So you're thinking ACS, dissection, rarer things like esophageal rupture, hypertensive emergency, and then pulmonary things like pneumothorax, pneumonia. Yeah, and, and you're in Liberia. So there's a broader range of differentials you have to consider, right? Yeah, of course. It could be that pancreatitis from the mythical scorpion bite that we've read so much about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what other information did you gather? So like any history, you're going to work your way through the list of differentials and try and ask kind of specific targeted questions to increase or decrease the pretest probability of each one. So with chest pain, we all know that the nature of the pain is a crucial differentiator. You know, its character, it was any migration, its severity. And then in the past medical history, you're looking for risk factors for the various conditions and then also preceding events before the pain came on and then any symptoms of complications from, from the different differentials. So for example, in dissection, you'd you know, have neurological complications or valvular complications. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's crucial. Um, there's such a large differential for chest pain and some of the investigations are really hard to get. So you have to get as much information from the history as possible to narrow that down. Exactly. And especially in Liberia, uh, we didn't have point of care labs. CT wasn't an option. Uh, even x-ray was only available in the adjacent maternity hospital. Yeah, that's right. Though when I worked there, plain films were now available for non-emergent patients. But the only point of care testing was for the big three diagnostics. So malaria, HIV and TB though the last was always difficult to to, to uh, test reagent stock out. So what, the, what other info did you get from him? Uh, well, he was pretty vague about the nature of the pain, um, which wasn't unusual in this setting. We're very used to speaking in our shared first language with patients who have a good level of education and medical knowledge, which allows them to kind of explain in minute detail the course of their illness to you. Whereas in Liberia, due to a combination of the language barrier, although English is the main language, most patients would speak a, a local dialect as their primary language, and also less medical knowledge in the community. The histories you took in Liberia were often rather kind of scant and, and vague. Absolutely. History taking takes on a really uh, a whole new level of difficulty when you're working out of your own context. It really makes you appreciate how difficult it is for ESL physicians who come to work here in Ireland. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he did tell us that he had no known past medical history and he wasn't taking any medications. There wasn't a history of trauma, no history of illicit drug use, and only positive in the history was a 10-pack year smoking history and he had quit 22 years ago. And again, this info has to be interpreted with caution. Uh, most people I saw didn't regularly have access to a GP. Uh, a lot of the time, the first presentation to a hospital would be with a life-threatening presentation as a consequence of a long-standing undiagnosed condition. Uh, yeah, it was crazy the amount of people presenting in DKA or uh, HIV with end-stage complications or catastrophic intracranial hemorrhages as the first presentation to the emergency department. So uh, so what did you do on your exam? So he looked, as I said, awful. Uh, he was in a lot of pain, diaphoretic, vital signs. BP was 130 over 86, heart rate was 116, respirator was 22, temperature was 
36.5 degrees. Uh, his cardiovascular exam was unremarkable. It, I couldn't pick a murmur and there was no radio radio delay um, and there was no significant BP differential on each arm. And the only pertinent finding on the rest of his exam was epigastric tenderness, um, although the abdomen was uh, non-peritonitic. So that's pretty interesting. So he didn't have any of the quote unquote textbook exam findings of aortic dissection. Yep. And at this point, I think uh, the team were kind of thinking ACS was the most likely diagnosis. So what initial investigations did you order? So we ordered routine bloods. These took around a, a 24 hours to come back um, as they, some of them had to be done externally. We did a, a ECG and that showed LVH. And then there was concern of ST elevation in the anterior leads, uh, which kind of supported a diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome. We had chest x-rays, so we did one of them and that showed a markedly widened mediastinum. So then you're in a position where you've got a few kind of competing differentials and I did what or we did what you usually do in that situation when there's diagnostic uncertainty and you try and get more data and this instance uh, was a bedside transthoracic echo and that showed a dilated aortic root at almost six centimeters with visible dissection flat which made the diagnosis of aortic dissection. Wow had you seen one with an ultrasound before? Yeah actually I was very lucky literally a few weeks before uh, we had a lady in the ED with barn door symptoms and signs of dissection and I grabbed the visiting cardiologist Dr. Kaima who was part of the internal medicine and residency training program and he did an echo and showed the dissection flap and showed the kind of way to get it and what to look for so i knew what to look for in this patient very impressive that's pretty incredible i've seen a few widened aortic roots even the odd thoracic aneurysm through the suprasternal notch but never seen a live dissection flapping away in the wind what a diagnosis i think the key here is like with most focus uh, we're talking about a rule in test ultrasounds really hasn't taken over ct as the gold standard but really as an adjunct to our clinical exam and well, I mean, seeing is believing most of the time. A recent study by Wang et al. in Journal of Ultrasound in Medicine showed that POCUS had a sensitivity of uh, 86.4%, which isn't too bad for POCUS, and a specificity of 100%. Now, of course, user-dependent, as we always say, but I, I do envision a day soon where our med students won't be asked the 10 signs of dissection on a chest x-ray, but be asked about the direct and indirect findings of dissection on POCUS. I hope that day comes soon. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more practical. But yeah, that's that's dead right, and that's very much my approach to using ultrasound. Um, use it as a rule-in modality, not a rule-out modality. Um, a normal echo doesn't exclude a dissection section but if you see a dissection on a bedside echo then that can help rule it in even in a system like Ireland where you have ready access to CT in certain situations having that diagnosis early makes a huge difference and to be honest even in somewhere with ready access to CT like Tala uh, certain situations ultrasound is sufficient to make the diagnosis or accelerate the the pathway of care that these patients need which is going to be complicated involving different specialties involving theater activation and things so the earlier you get it going the better and just the other day a postcardic arrest came in to the department rosk was achieved in the ed the ed consultants found a pericardial effusion on echo and uh, the consultant cardiologist came down and did an echo and saw a dissection flap and that was enough to call the consultant cardiothoracic surgeon he came in and accompanied the patients straight to the definitive operating care without a ct scan so don't hold us in suspense callum what happened to your liberian patient so he was managed medically initially luckily he wasn't um, what well, there was no thrombolysis available or pci but luckily no one went down that route we picked controlled his pain and his blood pressure and then arrangements were made he was discussed his options with him and the high mortality of leaving this unoperated um, he was clinically reasonably stable so he managed to persuade his employer who was a bank to give him a loan and he got a commercial air Ghana flight out the country sitting next to two random tourists or whoever it was <laughs> with his type A aortic dissection extending down to the renal arteries oh God. and he was picked up by a cardiothoracic retrieval team as soon as he landed uh, operated on that same day and and he walked back into clinic a few months later with a healed stenotomy scar um, to check up and say hi to us all. So it was pretty amazing. Awesome. That is incredible. It's a great outcome. Yeah. <laughs> what brings you to Ghana? Taking <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, time bomb. Wow. Excellent. Well done. That's a fantastic case and like really good that we've got kind of a first-hand account of how it went down. That's, that, that's amazing, Callum. Thank you for that. So I suppose chest pains that come in, let's kind of talk broadly about what kind of things that chest pain can represent. So I suppose let's just try and break it down into categories first so if we think obviously cardiac first of all you know there's even within that there's a number of different things that could be causing a chest pain so you could have an ACS could have a pericarditis myocarditis you know not to mention other common cardiac causes like cocaine aortic stenosis cardiomyopathies cardiac tamponade the the history kind of regardless of what what it is will kind of point you in the right direction and, and 
give you the important clues, I suppose, with cardiac chest pain, what kind of things are we looking for? You know, we're going to have the, the typically the central crushing chest pain radiating to one or both arms, you know, up into the neck. You're going to have a diaphoretic patient, dyspneic patient, nauseated or dizzy. Could be related to exertion or exercise. And I suppose with a pericarditic picture, you could have pleuritic pain and you might, if you're lucky, hear a um, pericardial rub, I suppose. Other things to consider, like you mentioned, would be an aortic dissection. So how would that typically present, Callum? Uh, so there's some things in the history that are kind of classically described for dissections. Sudden onset pain that's most severe at the time of onset, often described as a kind of tearing or ripping pain, often radiating through to the back, migratory, so the pain moving, signs or symptoms of things like focal neurological deficit, renal impairment, GI symptoms, anything basically, because all the blood supply to these various organs can be affected by dissection. And then your typical uneven pulses or blood pressures as well, I suppose. And then another thing that can give you that kind of same tearing pain. So if you have someone who's coming in with profuse vomiting and they get this sudden tearing chest pain, an esophageal tear or a boarhouse is important to uh, consider as well. Sticking with GI causes then gastritis. Can we, can we just have a shout out for, for gastritis type pain? I mean, I think it's just one of the most disrespected pains out there. Having been a gastritis sufferer myself, you know, it's it, it can be bad. It can be bad. And I, and I think it is one of those ones where if I hear a junior doctor uh, talking about Oh, just it, it felt like their gastritis. I immediately think ACS, 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 must rule out ACS. So I think it's one of those ones where for me, it's becoming more of a typical, atypical chest pain for ACS. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, that's kind of one of two considerations. One of them is an absolute red flag when you hear that to make sure that it isn't ACS. Also, like you said, like it, it can be quite sore in its own regard. Some hepatobiliary pain can present as uh, as chest pain as well. So it's, a, it's also an important consideration. That same hepatobiliary pain, I suppose, can present as right upper quadrant pain, which then leads on nicely into the other sources of chest pain, because some of that right upper quadrant pain can be pulmonary in origin. Pulmonary issues can present with chest pain as well quite frequently. So we know about your pleuritic chest pain that might indicate a, uh, a PE. Correlate clinically, as our radiology colleagues will tell us, an infective cause in your lungs as well would, would, would give you some chest pain. And not forgetting then inflammatory conditions, airway diseases such as asthma, bronchitis, and then to remember your pneumothorax as well. Make sure you don't miss that and a lung CA as well can give you significant chest pain. And the, the infective cause, especially, I, you know, I was joking earlier about the pancreatitis from a yeah. scorpion bite, but yeah, yeah. certainly in patients Definitely. who are immunocompromised, you're going to get an expanded um, range of pulmonary infections that can cause chest pain, things like TB, um, cavitating lesions, fungal infections. So those are all in the differential. I think uh, for both Cal and I, we've seen a fair bit of TB pericarditis, particularly uh, while working out in Liberia. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I suppose in this setting, it's especially relevant, yeah. Just to round it off, I know we were joking about it earlier, but musculoskeletal causes as well are important to consider. So you'll have your costochondritis and then you'll have your muscular chest wall pain from your first day back at the gym after a level five lockdown. And yeah, but those should always just be the last thing you say. I had a medical student the other day who opened their lift of differentials with stress. And I said, I have to stop you right there. That is that is the last thing that is on that list um, from an emergency point of view. Yes, absolutely. And it's no accident that we left those bits to last because... Like you said, Callum, it's important to rule out the big, bad, scary things first. Let's kind of delve a little bit deeper into um, the dissection, Callum. Sure. So in terms of investigations, we're going to get an ECG on anyone with chest pain. Those can be normal. They can have evidence of a STEMI. So um, 0.1% of STEMIs are in fact aortic dissections. Um, and that was uh, the case in our patient. The ECG had ischemic changes, which initially threw us down the ACS path. Um, and interestingly, when I read the operating note from the cardiothoracic surgeon, they noted an intimal flap that was was occluding um, the left coronary artery. So that's a well-recognized complication of a dissection. And then the other thing you can see on the ECG is things like pericardial changes, electrical alternans, which would imply a pericardial fusion or a tamponade. And then in terms of laboratory tests, they aren't any that are going to diagnose for you, but some of them are helpful in looking for complications. You might get creatinine elevation if there's renal involvement. You can get troponin elevation if there's been myocardial ischemia. D-dimer is a useful test. If it's negative, it's, it's very unlikely to be dissection, but unfortunately it's not sufficient to rule out dissections. So if it's positive, you know, there could be many things causing that. You're probably going to want to cross-match these patients and then move on to your imaging, which is your definitive diagnosis. So everyone will get a chest x-ray. That's 
can show a wider mediastinum up to around two thirds will have a wider mediastinum, but uh, not everyone. Um, it can show an abnormal aortic contour um, and you can have complications like pleural effusions. Um, it can be normal in up to 20% of patients, so it's worth bearing in mind. And then you've got uh, bedside echo, which is how we made the diagnosis. Quite, quite high sensitivity, as Jimmy was saying earlier, up to kind of 75-80% sensitivity and a very high specificity. It's more specific or more sensitive for ascending type A aortic dissections than type B. And you can also identify complications, things like aortic regurge and cardiac tamponade. And then your gold standard diagnosis is going to be a CT scan. Um, and that's obviously the definitive diagnosis, but there's a delay in getting it. But that's what you're going to need to make the diagnosis. That's it. But geez, well, what I'm taking away from all this anyways is I definitely need to sharpen up my echo skills. That is, that's that's very impressive. Like, I definitely think this case anyways is kind of making a case for all of us having that in our, uh, in our armory. Yeah, and as I said before, it's, you know, we all have CT, access to CT, but often there's a delay, depends on the time of night, and having information to accelerate that can, is really useful. And these patients need, like, immediate surgical intervention, so that needs to get going as soon as possible. Interestingly, in that um, paper I mentioned earlier by Wang et al., um, one of their secondary outcomes was time to CT, and uh, an important fact was that the POCUS didn't delay the time to uh, CT for their patients. So for the emergency physician, aortic dissection, management really consists of only four things and that's analgesia blood pressure management and time to ct and cardiothoracics for me i'll always start off with analgesia you don't need a dissection diagnosis required for giving appropriate analgesia for severe pain in particular so reach for the good stuff get the opiate in recess i'll typically always reach for fentanyl and while the ivs and the fentanyl are being prepared i'll start then on my focus and if i'm suspicious at the, at this stage after my focus clinically as well i'm calling ct and probably then starting a discussion with cardiothoracics right there and then. If the patient's hypertensive and tachycardic, of which they almost invariably are, I'll start off with the labetalol bolus. And while the ECG is being done after that, I'll get a right radial arterial line in and then potentially start an IV infusion of the labetalol if it's ready to go or just start continue on with boluses. If I haven't yet, as I mentioned, I'm ordering a CT at this point, um, ideally before putting in any arterial lines and, and whatnot. If a CT confirms a type A dissection, I'll be on the horn to cardiothoracics immediately to update them. And though there is a strong argument now to talk to cardiothoracics about all dissections immediately as they may benefit from TVAR early, especially if they are complicated. These are defined as those with persistent or recurrent pain despite analgesia, uncontrolled hypertension despite max medical therapy, uh, visceral or extremity ischemia, and rupture or expansion of the dissection. Uh, you may get a very angry cardiothoracic surgeon on the other end, but for the sake of an argument, it's worth it for your patient. And that's it. Um, what I'd say is I'd personally always make that call and I'd also probably just call our intensive care colleagues as well. We'll still probably be delivering all those critical care interventions ourselves but you know post-op that patient will likely need to go to ICU or maybe even pre-op depending how unwell they are so it's always a good idea to get them in the loop and uh, yeah never put off a call because you're afraid of the angry colleague on the other end definitely great point and just to mention the blood pressure target we'd be aiming for with that labetalol infusion as well so we'd be I suppose aiming for a systolic blood pressure between 100 and 120 millimeters of mercury and uh, that's you know that's how we do things in an ED in Ireland but how we might do things like in Liberia might be significantly more difficult uh, as illustrated in Callum's case and you know many of these limitations are common to most LMIC contexts uh, LMIC meaning low and middle income country uh, context and you know essentially when it comes to LMICs it's all about access um, we may think right away of the weird and wonderful tropical diseases but as you rightfully mentioned it's often the lack of access that leads to patients coming with fulminant disease to EDs and LMICs poor access to primary care is the reason for both of us having seen so many end stage of everything uh, in the form of non-communicable diseases like hypertension, chronic kidney disease and diabetes. It's also about poor access to medications due to stock out. Um, anyone who's worked in a humanitarian setting uh, will know that phrase. And there are many countries that don't regularly have the ability to stock even the most essential on the WHO essential medications list. And we've already touched on Poor access to imaging, in particular for patients who are very sick. Poor access to lab investigations also remains a problem. And the lack of investigations really puts a lot of emphasis on clinical diagnosis, but also places a much higher emphasis on point of care testing, including ultrasound. The value of POCUS is nowhere felt more than in the humanitarian medicine setting. Finally, uh, as seen in Callum's case, poor access to relevant specialists is also a major difficulty for the emergency physician working in LMICs. Having said that, though, it's not all doom and gloom and hardship. Uh, what you get when you work in these settings are rapid innovations that you would not see maybe at the same speed as you would in Ireland, as well as an increased effort to 
reduced waste and inefficiency, perhaps better than we do here at home. It's a very good point. And I think the uh, access to specialties is also applicable in Ireland. Not every centre has all the specialists. There's significant delays in getting patients between hospitals. I think that's something we, we experience here as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really nice run through of managing aortic dissections, both here in Ireland and in a more kind of resource limited setting. You mentioned earlier on some other interesting differentials. Like I know I have definitely less uh, less experience with, I know you mentioned uh, TB pericarditis. I suppose what else is on that list? So anything that's more likely if you're immunocompromised because of the high prevalence of immunocompromised from HIV. So things like cavitating lung lesions, uh, whether that's tuberculosis, legionella, um, pneumocystis, Joravini, um, and then also things that you're more likely to see in the tropics like chest crisis and sickle cell disease. And as Jimmy alluded to earlier, all the normal stuff that we see, but in a broader range of patients because of poorly controlled hypertension, poorly controlled diabetes, and the lack of primary care just leads to really quite young people coming in with presentations of, as I said, collapse from an intracranial bleed or hypertensive emergencies or MIs or dissections in quite a young cohort of patients. So it's definitely a much broader list the differentials than, uh, than we're used to considering, I guess. Not that it wasn't broad enough to begin with, but sure, look. Anyway, that was absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much to the both of you. Absolutely fantastic and really eye-opening, like I said earlier on. So I think we will leave it there and we'll get our adult in the room in to have a look over our work and uh, let us know how we got on. Thanks so much, Mo. Thanks, Mo. Our adult in the room this month is Dr. Jean O'Sullivan. Dr. O'Sullivan is a consultant in emergency medicine in Tala University Hospital and is the founder and director of Global Emergency Care Skills, an Irish NGO that provides emergency care training in LMICs. That was a really good discussion on aortic dissection. You've covered pretty much all the main points. As you rightly say, the classical signs don't always appear. Chest x-rays aren't always abnormal. Patients don't usually present with the textbook constellation of symptoms. The most important thing is to think about it. Things just go chaotically wrong when people don't think about it or don't trust their gut feeling when they actually do think about it to begin with. So if you think about it, look for it. Obviously, as you rightly said, uh, the other differential for a gentleman like this would have been sepsis, acute coronary syndrome, or indeed sickle cell as well would be something else to think about in the particular context of this gentleman. And I think it was Jimmy who said that um, a diagnosis of reflux is absolutely a diagnosis of exclusion. It's the last thing that we should really be diagnosing in someone with these kind of presentations. For our next segment, Jimmy and Callum sat down to talk with a colleague and friend they both worked with in Liberia for a flavour of what EM looks like there. Dr. Yenohu Hesu is an internal medicine resident based at JFK Hospital in Monrovia, Liberia. He is due to begin his emergency medicine specialist training in Cape Town, South Africa, and is currently working as one of the clinical leads for the military hospital, which has been the main receiving hospital for the COVID-19 response in Liberia. He has also experienced working with the Ebola treatment units and local disaster response teams. Hey, Sue, welcome, my man. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. Hope all is well, man. All good here. So, yeah, Callum and I just have a few questions for you. Uh, again, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Hesu, what's up? It's great to chat to you as always. Just wanted to know what your experience of emergency medicine has been like in Liberia. I know you're going amazingly on the training scheme in South Africa, but how has emergency medicine developed in Liberia up to now? Yeah, I mean, I'm currently in Liberia. There's not a structured emergency medicine program. So emergency medicine, as we all know, is a new specialty. However, Liberia hasn't really caught on to like making it a separate, you know, specialty. But we do, you know, see emergencies like everywhere else. So we work, you know, we have what we call emergency departments that's ran by separate, you know, departments. So internal medicine run the ER, surgery run the ER, OBGYN run the ER. And I happen to be an intern and not a medical officer in a JFK. So working in the emergency rooms there. Much of my exposure, though, to emergency medicine as a specialty really came from interaction with visiting faculty. So at least for my time, um, when I started work, doing clinical work, there's really no emergency medicine special, specialist in hospital. But I think I was doing my fourth year, maybe, yeah, I think my fourth year. I was a fourth year medical student at the time when we had some visiting emergency medicine faculty that was really training the residents at the time in um, ultrasound, basic ultrasound skills. And, and that was really my first exposure to 
an emergency medicine specialist, you know, seeing what they do. And, and it's really fascinating to me because we don't, we don't have that as a specialty. So you don't get a lot of exposure during medical school. And then even doing a clinical practice, you will see, you know, emergency cases in AED, but not, you know, that structure approach to emergency medicine. So I would say, yeah, my, my exposure has really been from interacting with visiting faculty that are actually emergency medicine specialists and just seeing the way they approach clinical cases and the way they approach, you know, emergencies and a bit different from the conventional, you know, medicine, surgery, OBGYN approach um, to patients in the ER. So for me, I found it really informative, very fascinating. And, and that really like sparked my desire to do emergency medicine, just seeing, you know, what, what these people are capable of. And then later on, um, when I became an intern, I had more exposure again to, you know, like other faculty that came um, to visit. One of them happened to be uh, Jimmy, who's also on the Coswell and, and you, Callum. So, yeah, just this interaction really, really opened my horizons to what emergency medicine is and, and, and you know, and the benefits, especially in a low and middle income country like like Liberia. That's amazing. And and you're heading to South Africa to do the formal residency program there. Uh, what was your motivation for, for doing that? Well, my motivation really is a combination of things, yeah? So I always found it really, really sad as a student or as a, you know, intern and now a medical officer, you know, especially when I was a student, you know, standing there in the ED and, 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 and you're discussing, you know, all these 20 differentials and pathophysiology and, and depending on the specialty that you, you find yourself in, in the ER, you know, in their division of the ER, then obviously it will, it will go that way. And, but then I really, I really saw that there was a huge lack of actual, that acute, you know, resuscitation, emergency care, and just that, that whole attitude, you know, of, 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 of this is an emergency. Everybody needs to run. Everybody needs to move. We need to resuscitate. We need to save this person's life. It's more of, you know, in medicine, for example, it's more of a laid back or, you know, take a history, do a physical exam, intervene. Also at JFK, unpublished, but there was a review of the charts, I think a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and nearly 60% of our mortalities happen, you know, right immediately when, when patients get into the hospital or within the first 24 hours. So th those kinds of things really started to make me question, you know, like the way in which we, we, we approach acute emergencies. And of course, there's a whole pre-hospital component, which is hugely lacking in Liberia. For me, that was a few of the things that really like, you know, drew my attention to, listen, like somebody needs to, you know, focus on this at least. And, and in Liberia, as, as you probably already know, we don't have emergency medicine specialists, you know, at least not people with formal training in emergency medicine. So it's really based on, you know, external faculty and, and people who come in and, and help out in the ER along with the residents of different departments. And then, uh, so I already had that, you know, like kind of like that desire to, to, to intervene there. Coupled with my exposure then, you know, meeting people who actually you know, train emergency medicine specialists and, and like I said, the, the way they approach things really, really, you know, let that fire for me even more. So those combination of things, I think, I think really like pushed me to start to talk, you know, with, again, with some of these um, visiting faculty, you know, Callum and myself, we had several conversations about this. And I think it was also like people also seeing that, you know, seeing the potential in me that I probably didn't see at the time. And saying to me, hey, Zoo, like, you know, you could totally do this, you know, you should go for it. But then where do I go? You know, residency don't exist here. Um, formal training don't exist here. So then I got encouraged, you know, to look outside and look for, for programs. So the decision for South Africa really, Caleb, well, obviously, you know, the story, but it was, you know, true, just like mutual friends, you know, reaching out to people there and saying, listen, um, you know, there's a candidate here in Liberia. I think Callum, you actually did that, um, sent out that email to Professor Wallace and, and you know, conversations was sparked from there and the need, you know, just for Liberia in general to get on with the rest of the world and, and promoting emergency care and emergency medicine. So, yeah, so I took that step and decided to apply through a competitive process, got shortlisted at the University of Stellenbosch, um, did a competitive interview was successful at the interview. Again, a lot of help from mentors and, you know, people who I got exposure to, an emergency medicine specialist. And, and yeah, and, and I got accepted. So now it's just the process of sending my documentations and, you know, securing funding, which is, you know, looking good for now. And then hopefully starting in July. And the plan is really, you know, long term is hopefully, you know, go get that training, serve as some, you know, sort of local champion on ground, collaborate with people, 
different emergency medicine specialists like you guys, you know, and, and other people from around the world and see how we can, you know, really try and build the specialty of emergency medicine and, and providing emergency care here in, in Liberia. That's amazing. And actually, it resonates with something I saw um, in the keynote of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine Conference the other day. Prof. Sally McCarthy, who is the president of IFEM, was saying that almost half of the global burden of uh, disease arises from emergency conditions in LMICs, but only a fraction of the funding is given to them and she had a slide with trauma care receiving 1% of the funding and HIV, TB and malaria receiving 36%. But that kind of reflects what you were saying about JFK with the mm. high proportion of people dying within the first 24 hours um, and the need to bring in emergency care into these settings. Absolutely. Absolutely, Callum. And, and again, like most of those HIV care, TB care, like in Liberia, you have to understand the context. Yeah. And you would because you, you know, you spend some time here. People don't go to wellness, you know, well clinic or, you know, do really do routine checks and stuff like that. So a, bu a buck of the burden comes to acute care. So people really come to hospital when they actually feel sick. And majority of the time is when they have, you know, some sort of acute emergency. And where do they come? They come to the emergency room. So, you know, bulk of these fundings that like you talked about, you know, go to special programs. But all these patients really come through the, you know, to the emergency room. That's brilliant, Hesu. Bright future ahead. So for the present, can you just tell me a bit about how COVID has affected your training as a resident in Liberia? Oh, yeah, man. Absolutely. COVID has had a huge impact on the entire training structure in Liberia, actually. So John F. Kennedy is, is where I work as a medical officer there. And and when, when we had our first case of COVID, we, we, we came up with a module. This is like at national level now, you know, like the incident management system that responsible to manage pandemics as per the WHO recommendation. So the case management structure is what we really like helped out with and, and we decided to have more of a centralized care. So try and get cases away from the referral hospitals and other hospitals and get them to this one facility for, you know, taking care of COVID patients. So what, what happened then was that a lot of facilities really scaled down, you know, on manpower and stuff like that and reallocated staff to the unit. And for me, I got reassigned to go and, you know, run, run the COVID unit. Well, Initially, the idea wasn't to go run. It was just, you know, I was the only doctor who had volunteered at the time to work at this unit. So I saw the first patient that had that tested positive for COVID in Liberia and subsequently had to set up, you know, a unit to, to manage COVID patients. But that disrupted my training at the teaching hospital. Yeah. So now I moved to this facility where, you know, you're only bringing in patients who are suspect or confirmed cases of COVID-19. So you can imagine now that I'm not seeing trauma, I'm not seeing, you know, a lot of other things that I would be seeing and managing as a young, as a young um, trainee in Liberia. So two things, well, it was a huge exposure, right, to a new, you know, emerging infectious disease, which I'm grateful for having that experience and also just like pushed me into this sort of early, like, you know, leadership management role as well as, you know, clinical and managing patients. But it really disrupted my, you know, training process at, at, at the teaching hospital. And, and it, it did the same for a lot of residents too. Like initially, you know, people you know, was kind of skeptical to join the team, but then we managed to recruit some residents from internal medicine, some residents from surgery, because we really try to build a multidisciplinary team to run this international COVID unit that we have in Monrovia. And we had to get pediatric residents. So all these residents um, kind of like, you know, their training kind of got disrupted for a few months. That's amazing, AC. And, and I think from previous discussions with yourself, this this unit is largely trainee-led, as I understand it. Isn't that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like I was saying, like, I mean, at my level, I'm a medical officer, yeah? So imagine me like being the only doctor there for like a two to three week period. And then we have more people join me. But we were really essentially an eight-man core team that comprised of myself, two internal medicine residents, one pediatric resident, two other GPs. We, we got covered by our boss, Dr. Jerry Brown, who's a surgeon. And, and also, we're lucky to have Dr. Mukta Agdeza, who's an infectious disease specialist, you know, covering us. So we had like, it was mostly like junior doctors team leading this unit, but then covered by, you know, one senior infectious disease specialist, another senior Sokamosis, who has extensive experience from the Ebola outbreak. So it was really just like tapping into their experiences from managing Ebola 
and other infectious diseases and then just allowing this young team to really lead the way and managing this COVID unit. It's uh, It sounds like quite an amazing experience, but uh, what uh, incredible responsibility as a trainee to take on to uh, to lead the national COVID unit. But knowing your past experiences, Esu, no better man really, you know, having worked with you in disaster management planning and I know your previous experience with the Ebola treatment units is uh, probably serving you quite a bit here. Yeah, Jimmy, and you know, and you know, like you just mentioned the disaster planning. Again, it, it brings me right back to the benefit of having, you know, specialists, you know, getting exposure to specialists in emergency medicine. I feel like that's what really prepared me, you know, somewhat. I was shook, you know, scared, obviously, but it really gave me a bit of confidence, you know, to know like, hey, like, you know, I've had interactions with people who we've planned, you know, we planned for one of the biggest protests at the time in Liberia. And, and, and most of those things were things that I had to, you know, quickly like refer to. And again, like just having access to people that could share knowledge and, you know, and like help me build our confidence really, really, really help as a trainee to take on such huge, you know, responsibility. So, Hesu, there's there's obviously a lot of interest for many emergency physicians from Ireland wishing to go, uh, you know, gain experience and work in LMICs, to work in the humanitarian context. What advice, if you have any, would you give to uh, an emergency medicine trainee like myself or Callum coming over to work in a place like Liberia? Well, first I would say, you know, keep, keep an open mind. Absolutely keep an open mind. Just don't let anything shock you. It's definitely, you know... Uh, a very different experience from probably what you used to back home in Ireland, or maybe not so much, but I don't fully understand the context there. But however, it's, it's a pretty rough terrain, you know, um, resources, you know, having the equipment that you probably used to working with. So it's really just about keeping an open mind and adjusting and really, really, really integrating, you know, just like immersing yourself into the culture, into the people. Because I feel like that's when you can really make an impact, you know, for whatever, you know, little time that you can come for, whether it's three months, six months, a year. It's really, really just being as open as possible and, and just you know, immersing yourself totally into every aspect of the environment, you know, that you find yourself in and, and just really being, you know, adaptable. But I find that to be, you know, something that most emergency medicine physicians or, you know, people who are even interested in doing emergency medicine have that characteristics already. And also just, you know, really trying to, learn because there's a lot of local, you know, experience that comes with, you know, practicing in this in this part of the world that you can really, you know, tap into and lean on and, and build that confidence. But one thing also like I've seen, you know, when people come is is really, you know, there's this like after the first few weeks, there's a sense of like huge frustration, you know? You see so much death probably you haven't seen in your entire career put together that you might see in a matter of weeks. And and a lot from, you know, things that you know, quote unquote, could be preventable, you know? So it's just readjusting your mindset, you know, being mentally strong to, you know, navigate the environment and, and figure your way out. And, and again, rely on, you know, your local counterparts and, and really collaborating in a responsible way, you know, where it's just like a, a two-way street collaboration, you know? Absolutely. I think your your comment about having an open mind is is probably the, the most important thing. I find a lot of people are coming in with, with their own ideas, their uh, their own programs, uh, along with their own funding. But, um, you know, there, there's a, a feeling of wanting to impose their own will, uh, I suppose, while they're there, mm. often in a very short period of mm. time. And what they really need to be doing is just listening for, certainly for the first while, to to get a better sense of, of the, uh, the local context. No, absolutely. I agree. And, and I mean, if, if you look at the trend and, and you look at um, programs, you know, that have you know, been in and out of Liberia, you know, over over decades through the war, immediately post-war, you know, prior to Ebola, post-Ebola, it's been a lot of different things happening. And, and you look at the longevity, sustainability, you know, and, and real impact, you know, a lot of things fail, you know, precisely because of the reasons that you just mentioned, you know, people think like, Hey, I'm an expert and I know everything, you know, and I, I, I have a plan and I can fix things. Uh, trust me, you, you're not about to fix, you know, you're not about to fix a problem here with solutions from there. You know what I'm saying? So it's really just being open, immersing yourself and, 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 and finding, you know, what the real issues are. And, and it takes a while to really understand these things and, and, and then making a huge impact that, that, that can really be sustainable, you know? And, and and I feel like those impacts really come with impacting people, you know, because if you're not going to be here long-term, then it's really about, you know, providing mentorship, you know, providing, you know, leaving that mark that's going to last for generations, you know? Like for me, for example, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not even remotely close to being there, but I can tell you, you know, for a fact that, 
me being a blessing to my patient is really because of a combination of a lot of things. You know, my experiences with people, you know, that I've learned so much from, you know, visiting faculty, visiting, you know, trainees and, and stuff like that. And, and just picking up things here and there from them um, has really, you know, formed the kind of physician that I am today, you know, and, and aspire to be tomorrow. That's Hesu Wenaho, future uh, Minister of Health for Liberia and <laughs> President of <laughs> Callum, I feel like you got too much, you got too much confidence in me, bro. But uh, you know, listen, thank you for the vote of confidence. Listen, and I might be stealing you guys from Ireland someday, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, warmer, warmer tropics and some fresh fish and surf would be nice. Oh, yeah. And, and to all the residents and training that want to come to Liberia, we have one of the best surf. You know, ask Callum, he'll tell you. Yeah, I'll vouch for that. I could certainly vouch for the fish. For our last segment, we had a great chat with some colleagues about their experiences working in LMICs. I spoke to Jimmy and Neve while Callum caught up again with our adult in the room, Dr. Gene O'Sullivan. To give him his proper introduction, Dr. Jimmy Lee is a specialist registrar in emergency medicine with a special interest in humanitarian medicine and is a valued member of the K-Star Report team. He recently took an out-of-program year to work in Palestine in Liberia. Dr. Neve O'Brien is a pediatric specialist registrar. Neve is based in Ireland but has worked for MSF in Nigeria and Yemen and has worked in several countries as an expedition doctor. Thanks again for joining us, guys. Before we talk about your own experience and where you worked, can you tell me what sparked your interest in global health and humanitarian work? So I was interested in it since I did an elective when I was a medical student. I went to Uganda for a month and I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to go back when I had more experience and when I'd be able to kind of contribute something. Um, and that was really where it all came from originally. And then talking to kind of senior colleagues who'd done similar things who were a few years ahead of me. Yeah, uh, my background before medicine was a mix of psychology and intergroup conflicts. And after working several odd jobs around the world, I realized the complexity of how difficult it is to simply kind of do good uh, when it comes to the world of international relations and diplomacy. So uh, humanitarian medicine seemed like the easier way to make a positive impact, though I think I realize now that even uh, maybe even especially in global health, you can't really escape those previous complexities I experienced. So that kind of leads in nicely to kind of what I was going to ask you next. I suppose a quote I read recently is that humanitarianism occurs where political processes have failed or are in crisis. So it kind of alludes to those conflicts you were mentioning, Jamie. Can you tell me about where you worked and and I suppose just some background as to what's going on or what happened there, just to give us a bit of the local context as to what necessitated that work. So I did two missions, one in Nigeria, one in Yemen, both with MSF. In Nigeria, I was in the northeast in my degree. And the issue there was that Boko Haram was kind of kicking off. It was an Islamic militant group that essentially had taken over a lot of the countryside. So a lot of the local people had been displaced. The men had often been killed and the women and children had kind of fled to the cities. So it kind of created a double problem whereby there was no one to farm the land and have produced the food and then also there was overcrowding the cities so the issue at the time was that there was kind of a lot of malnutrition and I was involved in a peds malnutrition camp there and then in Yemen there's been a kind of civil war going on since about 2015 it started with two Yemeni groups but what's happened in the meantime is that it's essentially become a proxy war. Saudi Arabia, America, the UK and France are supporting one group. And both of those groups have led to a propagation of the war because they get a lot of weapons, manpower, and the war has just continued because of that. So previously, Yemen had quite a high standard of healthcare, but... Due to the war, it's just kind of fallen apart. The public system doesn't work anymore. They've had a re-emergence of communicable disease that they didn't have before, like tetanus and diphtheria. And yeah, there's essentially no public health care there anymore. So again, I was working in PEDS there as well. How long were you there? So I was there for about five months um, and I've been in Nigeria for about five months, six months. I had the opportunity to do what was largely a two-month observership in an ICU in Al-Ali Hospital in Hebron. It was one of the largest trauma-receiving hospitals in the occupied territories and regularly received transfers from the Gaza Strip, uh, which you could see from the other from the hospital on a clear day. The difficulties experienced in the Palestinian Health Service are particularly frustrating as a middle-income context. Um, they really should be able to do much more than is possible at present, and that is largely due to politics. I, I could talk about these politics for quite some time, but 
perhaps that's something for a different podcast. Medically, I suppose uh, one of the things that I experienced quite regularly that was quite difficult were checkpoints. Checkpoints are something that we're coming to know even just crossing county borders. But uh, and I think um, throughout Irish history, certainly the population has been well familiar with. But in the occupied territories uh, in Palestine, checkpoints are certainly a, a daily reality. And in particular, with regards to ICU transfers, the they're, they're no more felt than in, in a situation where you're trying to transport a very sick patient to definitive care. So from there, I went to Liberia, where I worked as a clinical fellow in, emergency, in an emergency department in JFK Hospital in Monrovia. Liberia's healthcare system has experienced massive upheavals uh, to its health system, most notably due to decades of civil war and the more recent Ebola outbreak. The, you know, the, the difficulties that they face as a health system, I suppose, is just that they're constantly being rebuilt, whether it's a new government or a new new outbreak. Um, they're constantly having to reform and rebuild a system that's just seemingly constantly trying to get off the ground. For me, when I was there, I'd say my time was half clinical, where I worked at a senior registrar level, and then half emergency care systems and education. So I had the privilege of being involved in helping design future emergency care systems and major incident planning, as well as lecturing for the internal medicine residency program. I suppose you both had to take time out of program to undertake this work. How was this received or facilitated by your uh, training bodies and even individual trainers? So I'm doing PEDS, which is under the RCPI. They're actually quite amenable to this type of work. There's kind of a long-standing history of PEDS people taking a year out after their BST. And this happens so frequently that eventually some trainees approach the RCPI to kind of create an SOP of how this could be done as part of training. So now what you're allowed to do is on the HST, you're allowed to take six months out and go to work with various groups. So people who've gone have done missions with MSF. Other people have done uh, work with VSO, which doesn't really work so much here in Ireland anymore. But you're allowed to go away for six months and that'll count towards training. And even if you don't want to do that, you're allowed to take just random years out of your training to go away. And they're very receptive to that. Um, so I didn't really have any problems at all. I don't think that's the case for the majority of trainees across various programs. Just the RCPI is particularly understanding, particularly PEDS. And they've had a massive kind of interest in kind of refugees, migrant health and homeless children and stuff lately. So they're, it's something that they're interested in at the moment. Absolutely. And it's definitely going to be more and more a part of our, a part of our daily work in, in kind of coming years and decades. I'd imagine. And uh, Jimmy, how was your uh, experience? Um, well, the emergency medicine training body hadn't let anyone leave the SPR program for this type of work in some time. Um, so it was quite an honor to be granted a year away. Uh, to be honest, I received nothing but support from the training body, but the year is very much your own to arrange. And even with the best laid plans, uh, job sorted, things can happen that are out of your control. And when you have fixed dates, re kind of start and return dates, you're a bit stuck on what jobs you can and can't take. The one thing I suppose that would be quite a contrast would be training. Training while um, working away uh, for this type of work isn't currently recognized, unfortunately, by the RCSI at present. But hopefully uh, things will be moving more towards something like what Neve has with the RCPI soon. That'll be a great development, I'm sure. In terms of kind of other people listening into this or other trainees who'd want to who'd want to kind of undertake similar similar missions and similar experiences to you guys, what would you recommend to people who have an interest in taking on this kind of work? So I suppose there's a few things to think about. Firstly, when you're going to go. So depending on what your speciality is, that'll be different for different groups of people. So if you're like a surgical or an obstetric speciality, you'd have to be almost at consultant level before you go because you'll be working independently. And for MSF, they won't accept people less than consultants for surgeons and obstetrics. If you're a medical emergency peds, you can go when you're a registrar, but you shouldn't really be going without having completed your BST at a minimum. I did the diploma in tropical medicine and I find that really useful. You can do that in Liverpool and London. It's three months full time. And essentially what it does is it kind of reviews all of medicine, but from the point of view of global health, you incorporate public health, how systems develop and I think if I hadn't done that, I would have been really lost in how to approach most things. And it gave me a really good basis on how healthcare has worked in the developing world so far and things that can work and things that don't go so well. Um, a major part of your role, as Jimmy was saying, when you're over there is kind of management, leadership and teaching. So it's good to try and get your teaching skills up. So if you can become a qualified trainer for your resource courses like ACLS, ATLS, APLS, there's certain kind of special courses like ETAT, which is quite of PEDS resource for low income settings and there, I'm sure there's some adult medical versions of that too and I think management and leadership is really important so if there's any way you can kind of incorporate that before you go I went 
kind of after I'd done my BST. So I was essentially in my first year of being a reg, which is quite junior. And then I was acting essentially as a consultant. So it can be quite a change if you haven't had that before. And I think various specialities are different, but in PEDS, it's quite consultant driven. So, I mean, I had a lot more responsibility than I would have had than I probably still have at this stage. So if you can kind of get some training or get some experience in management and leadership, I think that would be helpful too. And also to work on your languages, especially French and Arabic. Yeah, I, I feel like I'd echo a lot of the statements you made. What I tell people is often just to be patient and be prepared. Um, many people are quite anxious to go on their first humanitarian job straight out of intern year. And for some jobs, maybe that's okay. But, you know, as long as you have the appropriate supervision. I didn't get started until I felt like I was capable, um, as you say, Neve, uh, as an independent practitioner to take on essentially whatever came through the door and I wanted at least a year of being an SPR to do that. There's quite a few courses, degrees, uh, qualifications you can work on and prep for your first departure and definitely I'd agree with you Neve, the uh, Diploma in Tropical Medicine Hygiene. I did my course with MSF last year which I thought was fantastic. You could do a Master's in Public Health which is quite topical at the moment, uh, quite popular and uh, even more useful as you say consider learning another language, definitely French, Arabic, um, Spanish as well would be on the, the big hit list for humanitarian jobs. Finally, uh, there's actually now a few more formal global health fellowship opportunities via Archem that have recently started up and for a trainee that will likely only have one year away with fixed dates, it may be the best option when considering an out-of-program year. Brilliant. I think those are excellent considerations. And I, like I know, they wouldn't be kind of the first thing that would come to mind when someone's considering this. So it's very important to flag those as important things to work on and sharpen up before considering taking on this kind of work. Because at the end of the day, you want to go somewhere and add value. It's not just about kind of, you know, going and doing the job as, as you would here. Like I said, it's important to think about the value that you're adding to the situation. But I suppose taking on these kind of jobs could have significant added value to yourself and your practice. What kind of things would you have picked up on there that would kind of benefit your practice when you come home? So from my point of view, I think I was in a lower resource area than Jimmy was, but the only investigations we had access to were like blood glucose, point of care hemoglobin and HIV once a week. So it's just very, very clinical compared to here. We had no imaging, no higher level of care, like no HDU or anything like that. So I found that I just got really comfortable dealing with kind of medical things on the ward and not getting stressed out about it. I saw people kind of presenting much later than they would have presented here. And then particularly in Yemen, I saw things I'd not seen before. So we had a tetanus room because we had so much tetanus. I'd never seen clinical tetanus before. We had diphtheria and we had a lot of kind of caustic burns because people made their own electricity at home with sulfuric acid. And I suppose the hardest part of all of it, kind of combining both my missions for me, was that MSF is quite means based. So before they set up a project, they'll assess what's needed and then they'll have very strict criteria and protocols as to what's in place. So basically, once they've decided what they're going to do, you can't really deviate from that. And as part of that, they have kind of cutoffs of when they're full. And the reason they have that is because if they just keep taking people, they feel the overall standard of care drops. So I found that really hard because that's not something I've had to come and deal with before. So for example, in Yemen, our cutoff was five years for inpatients. So if you were six or seven, you weren't allowed to be admitted. Our cutoff for neonatal babies that we were allowed to admit to our unit was 1.5 kilos. So if you were less than 1.5 kilos, you weren't allowed to be admitted. So coming from kind of a Western training background, it's very hard to understand that at the start but the more I worked the more I understood the economics and why it had to be that way. I also found it very hard that when we were full we were full and you just had to say no so that's something that I don't think anyone here would have actually experienced before like you always find a space on a trolley they can spend the night in ED but there sometimes you just had to say sorry we're full so that's something that not that it kind of adds to my experience here but just that it makes you a bit more resilient and that I'm much more aware since I've come back about the cost of things and kind of the opportunity cost of doing one thing to one person and kind of chasing the smaller things. Yeah um, I mean for me sometimes really was all about efficiency if, if there's something that we learn as trainees here in Ireland is getting <laughs> squeezing every bit out of that uh, that orange and you know that's something I think we as trainees bring over to working in LMICs around the world is that uh, that efficiency and for me that was experienced quite a bit with with POCUS you know as you mentioned a lot of these places uh, won't have access to imaging readily uh, in particular for our very sick patients so uh, establishing you know POCUS protocols was was a key in making things safer and more efficient um, and it's something we do here in Ireland as well and and so it was readily uh, I was readily able to bring over to uh, to some of the places I was working. 
as well, just working with what you have, whether it was modifying drain kits for chest drains or teaching ketamine analgesic dosing, you know, it's uh, it's it's all about trying to, to work with what you have when you don't have the things that you'd be used to working with. We mentioned earlier on the kind of broader differentials that you kind of have to work with. So the differences in terms of your actual clinical practice, um, Neve, in, in the pediatric population, what common presentations, I suppose, would you have to kind of approach differently than you would here in Ireland? So in Nigeria... Um, there was a lot of undiagnosed sickle cell. So it wasn't uncommon that we'd have children presenting in heart failure with hemoglobins of three or four. And that's not something I'd ever seen before here. There was obviously a lot of malaria, but it was almost kind of standard practice for a febrile child that they just got covered with keftriaxone and artesanate, no matter what was wrong with them. Um, but the big thing in Nigeria was the kind of very advanced undiagnosed sickle cell. And you kind of had to suspect that almost everyone had HIV as well. Um, and there was a lot of TB as well. In Yemen, I think kind of the the big thing for me was tetanus that I'd not seen before, both neonatal tetanus and um, kind of older tetanus just by getting injuries. I'd not seen the diphtheria before. And a big problem in Yemen was the neonates. The mothers presented very late. The obstetric care wasn't great. And we just had a lot of very poor babies that should have been in ICU but we just didn't have the facilities to kind of do for them what they needed and that was hard sometimes like we had no cardiology we had no kind of ability to intubate or manage these babies in an ICU setting so many of them could get diagnosed with something but we just couldn't treat it especially the cardiac babies okay Okay. Yeah, we, kind of, we mentioned in, a, in, in an episode previously the kind of difficulties, I suppose, with recognizing, first of all, and diagnosing vaccine-preventable illnesses. Because like, you know, like you said, kind of diphtheria, like who's who in Ireland like has ever seen diphtheria in the course of their training? You know, that's definitely a huge challenge. Any big differences for you, Jimmy? Well, start off to a tetanus. Definitely. We had a tetanus room. I'm not sure, uh, Callum, if you saw that while you were there as well. But uh, we had a tetanus room that regularly had three to four patients stuffed away in. And that was definitely something I'd never managed here in Ireland and took a little bit of reading up on to uh, to get used to. But besides that, uh, again, to echo Neve's uh, differentials, the big three, you almost had to presume that uh, they had at least one of them. Um, and, and similarly, many were treated with uh, antimalarials, antibiotics uh, uh, in, in the fever of unknown origin, patients that came our way. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the diagnostics uh, were down to what you had available to you. So, you know, thankfully, uh, point of care ultrasound was available to us. So we were able to make quite a few diagnoses with this and combined with uh, rapid diagnostic testing for malaria, HIV. And when we had the testing reagents, TB, you know, you, you had to consider different differentials, I suppose. Finally, as well, I know I, know I mentioned it earlier, but non-communicable diseases, you know, we, we would see so much DKA and end-stage hypertension that, uh, to be honest, probably made up two thirds of my workload on a day to day. You know, the majority of uh, our patients that we would see in Liberia would be would be related to non-communicable diseases um, that had just run rampant without a uh, primary healthcare system to, to manage. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, thanks very much, guys, for coming on and joining us. That was amazing. It's definitely an eye opener for me anyways, I'm sure for lots of other people listening. No worries. Thanks. No worries. Thanks, Mo. Okay, so as you've heard from Jimmy and Eve, we've been talking about different ways that trainees in Ireland can get involved in global health and working abroad. And we want to speak to you as someone who's trailed this path before us and who's set up a really amazing project with GEX, Global Emergency Care Skills. Can you tell us a little bit about GEX and how you came to start it? Sure, Callum. So GEX has been around since 2009. I had been looking through, when I was doing my ASTEM training in emergency medicine, I was looking at taking some time off to do some global health work some aid work and I interviewed with different charities MSF Goal um, I was on the UN volunteer staff listing for a while as well and the real challenge I had was trying to match up a posting with my ASTEM training so there was very few jobs that I could get to start in January and finish in July and depending on the program director at the time some people were very opposed to letting trainees out of the training program so I had huge challenges taking time off my training but what I was able to do was to do some brief training for MSF for their staff who were going overseas. So I went to Belgium and um, did some training there for their staff on, on trauma care and basically essential resuscitation. And kind of from that, the idea grew for me that, well, maybe this was really something that I could do in different hospitals. And I had a lot of colleagues, both consultants and SPRs, who were very interested in doing some global health work, but maybe couldn't take six months off, maybe couldn't take a year out of their lives for family commitments and other reasons, but would like to do something. So I put together a curriculum mostly based on trauma care, also sepsis management and major incident management. And the aim was really to make it skills-based. So it's hands-on skills training. I did a lot of 
groundwork before starting this with different hospitals and looked at different education systems across East Africa. And what I realized is that a lot of doctors and nurses, they've got great undergraduate training, they've got great book knowledge, but it's the hands-on skills learning at a postgraduate level, which is really where they need help. So we set up as basically a simulation course and we rolled it out in Kenya in 2009. We ran two courses there. And then from there, we moved to Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Ghana, and we've gone back to most of the centers we've been to as well a couple of times. We've since partnered with the College of Surgeons of Eastern Central Southern Africa. They've been really helpful. And the only way that this has really worked is by having people on the ground, people in hospitals who are stakeholders and who let us know what they want us to teach. Um, So we've kind of put together a menu of a curriculum and then the hosting hospital decides what they'd like us to focus on, whether that's ultrasound skills, trauma skills, or more of a pediatric um, type of curriculum. We've also partnered since with the WHO, and we've been asked to sit on their global initiative on emergencies and essential surgery, and we've helped them to develop their curriculum. So it's it's been really fantastic to see things grow. We're always looking for faculty. We have a requirement that you've got to either be an SPR or a consultant, and that's really just to guarantee the people we're teaching that this is you know senior quality teaching. We know we're not bringing out very very junior doctors do the teaching for them very much skills based we need always help refreshing the curriculum coming out to deliver the courses as well so if anybody's interested you can contact me in Tala Hospital or you can go on our website which is gecs.ie Super that sounds incredible and I think it's really important that you know the need to ask the people on the ground what they want to be taught rather than just generating a, a curriculum and imposing it on them. And also having the senior-led teaching is amazing. I know you're saying it's difficult to incorporate the time away with your training, and I know that's still a, an issue for us trainees. How do you think that could be resolved or what, what kind of things can you think we could do to make it more easy to incorporate some time away working in global health with emergency training in Ireland? Well, I think there's greater recognition across all specialties of the value of global health, not just for doctors who go away to work in Africa, Asia, but also training Irish doctors who are working here to recognize infection patterns and indeed have, have better to do with pandemics, because that's often what you'll, what you'll learn when you're working overseas. The form of postgraduate training bodies have put together a working group on global health and um, different specialties are represented on it. I'm representing emergency medicine. We're putting together a curriculum, which hopefully, which is being led by Dr. David Weeklam, which will hopefully be taught across all specialties. And certainly I hope that emergency medicine through their committee on higher training will put together a subcommittee on global health. That would be my hope. Orchem in London and certainly ASEP, they've got very strong subcommittees on global health. And indeed, they're even campaigning to make global health a subspecialty um, with full subspecialty recognition in the UK. So I, I really hope that Ireland will do the same. And that will make it much easier then for people to have part of their training abroad or to have structured fellowships um, at the end of their training in global health. Well, that would be fantastic. Thanks so much, Jean, for coming on the podcast. Great to chat to you. Great. Thanks so much, Callum. And that is it for another episode of the Case Dot Report. Thanks so much to Callum and Jimmy, to our wonderful adult in the room, Dr. Gino Sullivan, and to Hesu and Neil for joining us. I have to say, I really enjoyed this one. Incredibly eye-opening, and there's lots there to discuss. Find us on Twitter at The Case Report to join the conversation. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you prefer. And if you can give us a rating or review, that would help new people find the show. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.